demand, labor, and the productive categories of social analysis. Um, Patrick Wolf, as we heard yesterday, beautifully analyzed the important distinction in the history of the United States between racialized regimes of colonial difference premised on the expropriation of labor and those based on the logic of elimination, which variously authorized land dispossession. His focus on dispossession connected to essential but non-essentialist indigenous theories that centered land, and his timing was impeccable. Wolf honed those ideas in the late 1990s and early 2000s, which corresponded in time to the time that the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, NISA, was in formation and growth, and in which my generation of scholars was formed. My goal today is, on the one hand, to uphold, via ethnographic reflection on the cultural politics of nature, the distinction that Wolf drew between land and labor as the historical and present-day bases of distinct projects of racialized difference and oppression that structure American political orders, even, and this matters, that do so even when indigenous peoples are not directly involved. On the other hand, my goal is to suggest how maintaining land and labor as analytical categories in scholarship on settler colonialism, rather than attending to the productive power risks sometimes reproducing the injustices such work seeks to describe and dismantle. This is in part because land and labor as salient categories with, within modern political and social theory in part emerged from conditions and enactments of American colonialism and capitalist expansion. So in what follows, I'll draw on two quite different projects matched quickly together. Um, one is a, pro a paper in progress about indigeneity and money in modern social theory and the other, a current ethnographic um, book project on the cultural politics of water in Florida Everglades. So classic modern social theories of money and political theories of money, especially from Locke forward through the likes of Adam Smith and Montesquieu, but also through their, their prominent descendants like the anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan and Marx and Engels, these tend to highlight qualities of this special form of property, money, that reveal or remake the attributes of individuals who use it and also the social groups said to be and do in different relation to it. It's striking how often and how importantly North American indigenous peoples figure in these canonical texts on every page. Uh, no, not every page. They're on lots of pages. <laughs> and, 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 and with a constant theme that Indians have no money. The colonial engagement with, and use no money, the colonial engagement with the new world transplanted the European preoccupation with the state of nature to new and it seemed fertile and much desired ground. As John Locke famously quoted, quote, thus in the beginning of the world, all was America. Oh, sorry, thus in the beginning, all the world was America. And more so than that is now, for no such thing as money was anywhere now. These authors attended to money among American Indians so insistently because they took the money form to be the enabling precursor to private property and therefore to government. I'm not going to retrace all those steps now, so I hope it suffices to assert two mirrored points. First, that indigenous peoples, allegedly spread across and part of the North American wilderness and lacking in agriculture, were defined by Europeans and settlers in part by the absence of money and via labor, the absence of private property. But in turn, and more to my point, those scholars defined money and property, in part, as that which modern non-indigenous peoples have in use. As a constitutive absence, indigeneity figured in the conceptualization and delineation of key categories of political economy. So money, in so, in so many canonical texts, signified an individual's capacity for abstraction and future orientation 
by contrast to figures like Rousseau's Carrot, for example. Montesquieu connected the lack of money to savage equality and despotism. While its presence was a form of semiosis, as a form of semiosis, signaled civilization. Beyond the individual, money, at least in men's hands, made possible the development of private property and upend upended social organization. For the Scottish Enlightenment thinker John Miller, for example, whose work Patrick Wolfe uh, first brought to my attention, money loosened outdated social constraints and permitted productive ambition to replace the limited freedoms of equality that had been characteristic of American Indians and other savages. Similarly, Smith and others saw money as permitting freedom by overcoming the kinds of social um, distinctions that structured primitive societies, to use all the scare quotes, um, like the indigenous Canadians of whom he wrote. On the other hand, people like Rousseau worried that private property and the money that undergirded it created inequality. For Locke and others, the durable quality of money made possible private property by preventing spoilage. Land plus labor and money made private property both possible and morally permissible. But again, in these writers' economic imaginations, American Indians did not have money, nor did they add labor to the land, this despite ample empirical evidence to the contrary. And subsequently, Lewis Henry Morgan, whose theories grew out of Haudenosaunee research and who so directly influenced Angleton Marx, held that the rise of money and private property among human groups, along human groups' paths from savagery to barbarism, led to fundamental social and importantly political reorganization. The switch from kinship-based to civic-based political or civic-based organization hinged on the money form. So as should be clear, these are by no means solely economic matters. The conceptual exclusions from money and property with their labor entailments were co-produced with juridical ones, insofar as liberal political theory grounded the authority of modern government and private <coughs> property and in turn in money. Jurists such as John Marshall in the famous 19th century Supreme Court case Johnson v. McIntosh justified the dispossession of American Indians in part because he averred they lived in a savage state of wilderness. We'll get back to wilderness in a minute. The strong association of labor with settlement and its structural dissociation from indigeneity led to a US state focus on labor subjectivity as a mode of de-indigenization, whether in vocational Indian boarding schools or mid-20th century federal Indian relocation programs. Such infamous examples involved the physical removal of native individuals from the land and disciplinary reorientation to labor. In the longer paper, I'm, I'm showing, and really that's the bulk, the bulk of the paper, is showing how the money property government complex, settler complex, has mattered, both for disciplinary anthropology and for, the, and for American public culture at several historical moments and in debates about the functions of wampum, the logic of potlatch, and the impact of tribal gaming. Methodologically, this has required following, as Jody Bird models, quote, the elisions, erasures, enjambments, and repetitions of Indianness, end quote, and the, quote, traces of indigenous savagery and Indianness that stand a priori prior to the theorizations of origin, history, freedom, constraint, and difference, end quote. So Patrick read and gave me wonderful, extensive, and characteristically expansive comments on the full paper manuscript about Muslim indigeneity, which is why I had to bring some of this in today. A bonus was that he included his in, in one round of those comments, he included an email with the subject line, money, honey, exclamation point. <laughs> um, he pushed me to understand social theories as underpinned by and through uh, and reproductive of material forms, in particular the consolidation of capitalism through settler colonialism. 
In the course of it, Wolf mentioned that perhaps his favorite of all of his articles, of his own articles, was on being woken up, the dream time in anthropology and in Australian settler culture, which appeared in 1991 in Comparative Studies in Society and History. It's a lesser known piece, cited only one-sixth the number of times as settler colonialism and the elimination of the native, for example. On being woken up takes the question of the relationships among, takes up the question of the relationships among anthropological theory, history, and difference. Wolf subjects to razor-sharp analysis the dreaming, a concept coined by anthropologists at the close of the 19th century to describe an aboriginal moral order, then taken to be anchored in the distant past. Australia could be awakened from the dreaming, explained Wolf, but the arousal was of land into property. Quote, settlement was rescuing the land from nature as reason rescues consciousness from the chaos of dreaming, end quote. By the mid-1900s, as the frontier era closed in Australia, anthropological conceptions of the dreaming, he, he explained, shifted to describe less a distant past than an ever-present non-economic ritual space-time. In both formulations, distant past, ever-present, Wolf explains, indigenous peoples did not appear to be suited for labor. This is bitterly ironic. Anthropologist Audrey Simpson, in her book Mohawk Interruptus, calls our attention to constitutive forms of labor performed by Ganawagi Mohawks and others as such in, in Canada and the United States. Labor required by the political order and by forms of knowing like anthropological discourse on um, the Iroquois and other indigenous peoples. She says, quote, this is the labor of living in the face of an expectant and a foretold cultural and political death. As such, it is the hard labor of hanging on to territory, defining and fighting for your rights, negotiating and maintaining governmental and gendered um, forms of power." End quote. The dreaming, Wolf concluded, was an ideological elaboration of the doctrine of terra nullius. Wolf clarified the Catch-22 implications of this. Quote, bad savages do not deserve the land, and good savages do not use it. Either way, they're dispossessed. The dreaming complex in Wolf's hands is, he says, dialectically productive of cultural practices, simultaneously sustaining and reproducing colonialism and delimiting indigenous responses to it. Also dialectically productive, I'm suggesting, may be the very categories of land and labor and money that structure settler colonialism and the scholarship thereupon. And that takes me to a very different but nonetheless linked issue of land in the Everglades where the land versus labor distinction as passed through a cultural politics of nature, does the work of redistributing political belonging, interests, and power in ways that reproduce inequalities. Beginning in the late 18, uh, beginning, sorry, beginning in the 1880s, developers and the state of Florida began to reclaim, that is to drain, massive subtropical wetlands of South Florida for the purposes primarily of agricultural, residential, and commercial development. Today, the Everglades have been shrunk to half their size, Seven million people now live in South Florida, and the region is an agricultural powerhouse, especially in sugarcane, citrus, and fresh winter vegetables. Even as reclamation proceeds, reclaiming the land, draining the swamp, Everglades restoration became a popular and pressing cause in the last quarter of the 20th century. And in 2000, Congress passed the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, or SERP, which at an estimated $10.5 billion is the costly and costliest and most comprehensive ecological restoration project in the world. Well, it's likely to, well, it's likely easy, I think, for all of us to envision how reclamation, draining the swamp, dispossessing Seminole Indians, how that was a settler colonial project. So too has been restoration. 
couple quick examples. Scientific models of restoration peg, they have to have a restoration baseline. That is, the last time that nature reigned undisturbed after which degradation begins. So in Florida, the, the actual models um, peg the onset, uh, peg restoration to the onset of white settlement. Despite both in prior indigenous modifications of the landscape, there are big canal systems there, and the gradual pace of settler drainage of the swamp. Invasive species management uses nation-state borders and the moment of colonization to determine the legal status of a species as native or invasive. Restoration that aims to provide sheet flow of fresh water through the Everglades relies conceptually, politically, and symbolically on a nature that is wilderness without people, a nature that is only possible for Americans to so easily envision precisely because non-human wilderness has been a settler colonial technology of dispossession in which American Indians have either been evicted from lands deemed natural or naturalized themselves as part of the landscape. As Wolf put it um, in Traces of History, quote, there is no such thing as wilderness, only depopulation, end quote. I'd like to focus on one moment that, um, briefly, that brings to light the socially productive power of the land labor distinction, a dramatic, albeit largely failed, state of effort to restore drained agricultural lands to, for the Everglades. Shortly before the 2008 recession, in, in the spring, in, the, in early summer, the state of Florida and the United States Sugar Corporation announced that in order to advance Everglades restoration, the state would buy up U.S. Sugar, the company, and all of its assets, including 187,000 acres of agricultural land, mostly drained to Everglades, for a whopping $1.75 billion. The project would be the largest ever acquisition of a private firm for the purposes of ecological restoration. And the goal was to provide the missing link uh, that would restore sheet flow across the uh, key part of the Everglades. National and international media outlets reported this, and no one was more surprised than the residents of Clewiston, Florida, population about 6,000, and, and known as America's sweetest town. U.S. Sugar is headquartered in this quasi-company town, rural town, and it had, the company had, at least until recently, been a model corporate citizen the sponsorship of youth programs, the annual sugar festival, owning most of the land, and directly or indirectly employing most residents, both permanent and migrant. As they faced economic collapse, rural residents criticized, as they faced economic collapse if the deal went through, the rural residents criticized the plant's coastal supporters for demanding huge sacrifices of rural Canadians, even while no one seriously contemplates reversing or even much slowing suburban development that chews up the Everglades. At stake were jobs and, as I heard again and again, a rural way of life. In the end, the recession and the election of conservative Florida Governor Rick Scott greatly diminished the deal, and only a fraction of the land changed hands, and U.S. sugar is still going. So the deal was mostly scuttled. But as I followed the proposed deal and its aftermath ethnographically, I veered between normalizing and being taken aback by the fact that despite Got it. <laughs> Sorry, let me start that over. As I followed the proposed deal and its aftermath ethnographically, I veered between normalizing on the one hand and being taken aback on the other hand by the fact that despite all the discourse and concern about job loss, little debate over the proposed deal focused on farm workers, most of whom were Latino or black. White and Cuban American farmers, civil and, and business leaders and employees invoked their, their ties to the land argued that farmers were the land's best stewards and generally advanced a vision of largely masculine agrarian citizenship. That vision, as Wolf's readers would expect, 
symbolically and materially descended directly from American settler narratives of agrarian citizenship that long have anchored the dispossessive nation state. The state almost bought out U.S. sugar, and in doing so just demonstrated little regard for the residents of the region. Even white Americans can be dispossessed by the settler logics of wilderness that enable both reclamation and restoration. These are powerful discourses. But meanwhile, Latino and to a lesser extent black laborers whose work built and sustains this agricultural economy generally are not in the room and have little ability to stake claims. As Armando Gonzalez told me of his work in Oranges, this is in translation quote, it would be good to emphasize in your book that if these lands have flourished over time, it has been with the help of hard work by humble people, people who have dedicated their lives to working, end quote. The constitutive exclusion of racialized and non-property-owning labor from the ways that nature and citizenship commingle through land and race produces ongoing inequalities in rural America. Much too often, debates over ecosystem restoration, or any environmental issue for that matter, traffic in false but telling opposition between jobs and environment. The framing is tempting. On the one side, the livelihood of often rural and sometimes marginal communities. On the other side, environmental ideals. Increasingly, environmentalists respond with their own arguments about how saving the environment is good for the economy, perhaps even for the jobs in question. Right on cue, Everglades environmental groups have produced economic analyses that use ecosystem services valuation to make the case for the economic benefits of Everglades restoration and then attempt to quantify the money value of nature. All of this leaves out larger questions about how nature and capital became, become and remain linked. These are political economic questions, but our answers are constrained by the categories of analysis. That ecological restoration is partly about land, makes it about farmers, and to some extent indigenous peoples in American discourse, but precisely not about labor. In a settler society like this, labor and land as categories of analyses analysis can disable as much as crystallize not only scholarship but also political action. I'm not denying Wolf's point that we must attend to the materiality and the political projects through which categories, whether the dreaming or otherwise, are produced and reproduced. But labor and land, at least in the United States, are simultaneously material and historical reference and also categories of discourse and analysis that do productive and reproductive work. One way to tackle, to gain traction on this, is to grapple with the ethnographic complexity of settler colonialism and its various categories, including land and labor, and to theorize from there. Another, which I'm hoping to um, explore in the longer version of this paper, um, is to insist upon foregrounding indigeneity as a category of analysis, even when the people in question are not indigenous. And to center theories from Native and Indigenous studies in the study of messy claims, ways of being, and economic positions loosely captured by the terms of land and labor. Again, whether or not the reference, reference, direct reference is Indigenous peoples. As J.K. Haolani Kawanui wrote, soon after Wolf's death, we cannot lose sight of how, quote, Indigenous peoples exist, resist, and persist, end quote, in ways that matter. And that this is true not only analytically, but also in the political economy of the academy. For example, what gets published in settler colonial studies, books and journals, who's cited, etc. And we can talk about Wolf's own citation practices in this light. Otherwise, Kehalani writes, and Wolf fully agree, would have agreed, quote, to exclusively focus on the settler colonial without any meaningful engagement with the indigenous, as has been the case in how Wolf's work has been cited, can reproduce another form of elimination of the native, end quote.
I'll leave you.